Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we will once again look at these first 11 verses. We'll look at this introduction uh, to the book. That's what this is. And it's not a book, it's a sermon. This is one sermon. I know, exactly. There's a lot in there for one sermon. But this is a sermon, and this is the intro to the sermon. And so last week we looked at this specifically from the perspective of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to do that. Um, I was planning to, to do Ecclesiastes 1 on Easter. So, um, I, and I wanted to do that so that from the very beginning you would understand that in everything we're going to read and look at in this book, to remember that at the time in which Solomon prepared this material, there was nothing new under the sun. But with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is now something new. And we want to keep that in mind as we go through this book. Because the content and the material of this book is startling. And it can be really easy to forget. There is all, if you read commentaries, you can read two different commentaries. One written by a PCA minister, the other one written by a PCA minister. And one will say this book has an overall positive message. And the other one will say, this book is cynical. Okay? And so we want to keep the resurrection of Jesus Christ ever before us as we're working through these things. And at the same time, we also have to allow the book or the sermon to speak. And so this morning, we're looking at the introduction again. But this time, we're looking at the introduction uh, and really going to let the introduction speak for the entirety of the sermon itself, for the entirety of this book of Ecclesiastes. So the title of the sermon this morning is the title for our sermon series, Ecclesiastes, How Dying Informs Good Living. Now this is going to be a difficult sermon for some in here this morning. And I want you to know, I took you into consideration. But there is wisdom in these words, no matter how difficult they are. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the labor at which he labors under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the, in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you know so much better than we about the darkness of sin and death and about the reality of this world as it exists under your curse. And so we thank you that you are not afraid of the darkness and you are not afraid of sin, and that in Jesus Christ you have demonstrated your ultimate strength and victory over these things. And so help us, Lord, through the vision that our dying Savior and risen Lord provides us, that we do not have to be afraid of the darkness, that we do not have to be afraid of sin and its consequences in this world, but that we can walk in the wisdom of what you provide us here. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and fill them with yourself. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, in our introduction to Ecclesiastes, we, we looked at it from the perspective of this is material that comes from Solomon. There are disagreements over, over that, but that's where I come down. This is from Solomon. Some people say that um, this is, has an, a very early dating in the history uh, of God's people, and others say it came really late, that it came after the time that the people had gone into bondage and slavery and uh, bondage and slavery in Babylon and had come back. And what I want you to understand is whether it has an early dating or whether it has a later dating, the material is from Solomon. The people who say it came later, there are some who are conservative who say um, that it is um, Ezra who has found this material and is taking that material and presenting Solomon's material to God's people. This is Solomon's material. This, these are his words. This is his wisdom. And it is a wisdom that is so very needed for us as God's people. It is a wisdom that is to inform and shape our discipleship, what it means for us to be followers of God in this world. It is uh, a book and it is wisdom that is powerful for us for evangelism. When we work through this, what, what we are seeing is, is uh, a glimpse into um, a reality that our neighbors face just like we face. 
but they face it without the resurrection. They face it without hope. They face what is written here as if this is all there is. And this is so good for us. You and I live in this constant blessing of a new life in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You and I live, as we saw last week from 1 Peter, as those who have been raised in Christ with him. And, and because of that, we have received already the eternal inheritance and the blessing that comes from being participants in his resurrection. But the reality is, not everyone that you talk to has that experience of the world. The reality is, you and I don't always live according to our experience in Christ. And so there is a wisdom here that God provides us through dark imagery, through a realistic presentation of a fallen world. It is a gift from God that he gives to us to help us understand and live in the real world, in the world that actually exists, not the world that we want to exist. The real world that actually exists, not the worlds that you and I tend to pretend exists. It is the real world. And the real world is this. You are going to die. The real world is that last Sunday, one of Hannah's classmates in Charleston woke up, had a headache, ended up going to the hospital, and died. Seventeen. Does that shock you? You know why that shocks us? It's because we are so good at playing let's pretend. Okay? The reason I'm saying this is this is the way Solomon communicates to us. He communicates in these dark images because they're real, because he knows we need it. The introduction, these first 11 verses form and shape for us what he is going to look at one verse after another. And what he does is he jolts us into realizing that everything is not as clean and tidy as we like to pretend. That this is an introduction that involves shock tactics. Shock and awe, if you remember. It's meant to grab our attention and to get us to listen, to force us and help us to deal with ourselves, our world, and with God in more than just appearances. Remember Job and his friends? 
Job's friends come to Job because he's suffering, and what do they say to him? Well, this is obviously because you sinned. So if you'll just confess your sin, then God will restore you, and he'll heal you, and you won't have those painful boils anymore. But is that why Job was suffering? What happens when life does not always fit the standard categories of how we imagine things to work? What happens when things in life don't always go according to a normative pattern that God himself even reveals? According to the Old Covenant, there is a place for understanding what is called retributive justice, that if you do the right things under the law, you get the blessings that come from the covenant. These are not, this is not salvation. It means blessings in this life. If you follow the covenant, there are blessings that you can expect. If you don't follow the covenant, there are curses you can expect. At the national level for the people of God in the old covenant, they had certain promises. And so it's not, it's not weird here for Job's friends to come to him and say, the reason you're suffering is because you sinned. That is a normal way for them to understand what was going on in their lives. The problem is, life doesn't always fit these nice, clean, tidy patterns because there was something unique happening with Job and that is that the devil came to God and said, have you tested your servant? And God said, go ahead. And the test was not because Job was unrighteous. It was because he was righteous. And he suffered as a part of a test of his faith because God saw who he was and and wanted to strengthen that. And so he did by allowing the devil to come and to test and to do these things, always within God's constraints. And at the end, when he comes through it, he is rewarded and he is blessed. Beloved, our world does not always function according to those nice, clean, tidy categories that we want it to function. It's not always if something bad's happening, it's because you did something bad. Or if something good's happening, it's because you did something good. In this life, sometimes you will go through bad things precisely because you are doing the right thing. And have we ever needed to be reminded of that more than right now in our current cultural context? Job's experience did not correspond to the standard categories. And what happened is these friends who were friends misapplied true things. What they said was correct. They just were misapplying it. And they misapplied true things and they damaged their neighbor instead of loving him. And they did it misguidedly in God's name. Life is not one size fits all, unless 
you're talking about your coming death. As we saw, talked about last week, this introduction is framed around this idea of vanity, as it says in the ESV, or hevel, as the Hebrew word is. It is a word that does not mean meaninglessness. This is not a philosophy paper attempting to convince us that the universe as we know it is pointless and that, it has, and that life doesn't have meaning. That is not what this is about. In fact, more than six times as we will work through this sermon, he'll talk about the way that you do find joy in this life under the sun. He'll talk about how there are certain ways of living that are better than others. He'll talk about there are certain ways of going about relationships that are better than others. This is not about meaninglessness. This is about vanity from the perspective of meaning breath, vapor, breeze, a puff of wind, a bit of smoke, or as I said, cotton candy. Cotton candy is something that is there. It is real. You can touch it. You can smell it. You can taste it. But as soon as you taste it, it disappears. And throughout the scripture, this is what God presents to us over and over and over. You can look at Psalm 39, 144, 103, James 1. I could go on. Life is a breath. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. And the reality for us is this. The here today part has real meaning. The moment is real. The moment has meaning. But even in the realness and the meaning of the moment, it's still a breath. And this is true for everyone, even those like us who live in the hope of the resurrection. Until the resurrection actually reveals itself in its fullness, you and I experience life in this world as a breath. Now, because of the resurrection, you and I live with a foot in two worlds. You and I are citizens of the heavenly places, even as we are still citizens within this world. We are accepted as righteous, even though we are still, in actuality, still sinners. Sin's penalty has been paid. Sin's power has been broken. Yet sin's presence still remains. Christ is already... Uh, is already raised, and yet the fullness of that resurrection is still yet to be revealed. This is what we call in theology the already and the not yet. There are some things that are already true, but they're not true in their fullness yet, and so there is still a fullness of these things to be revealed. Until that time comes, we live in the already, but we also live in the not yet. We are those who are raised, already raised in Christ and have the eternal inheritance as his sons and daughters, and we still have an experience of life under the sun here as a breath. And we have to hold on to both. 
We, extill, we still experience the vapor of life under the sun. You and I, unless Christ returns while we are here and the fullness of these things are unveiled as we're watching, unless that happens, you and I are going to die. And so this is so important for us that we embrace the hevel of this life, that our life under the sun is transient. It is short. Time flies, right? Not only when you're having fun, but time flies the older you get. Young people, (laughs) young people, I'm not going to point anywhere. But there are some more seasoned people in our congregation. Talk to them. (laughs) They're more tenderized. That's good. But talk to them and hear about their lives and their experiences. Learn what they have learned through the passage of time. And one of the things that you'll hear is, I wish I knew this back when I was your age. All right, we've got some head shaking yes. Listen to them talk about their children and they'll be describing a, a, a child that's about to turn 46 as if they were one still with little pigtails and it was just yesterday. Life is short. Life is transient. You blink and everything is different. We are born, we live, we die, and it happens so quickly. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting, we are told by Solomon somewhere else. Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind, here one minute and carried away forever the next. There is wisdom in understanding that. Life is not only short, life is elusive. Try to grab your breath. Now, my kids are normal. Dad's breath is pretty bad. There might be something you can grab on there. Try to grab smoke then. Try to reach your hand into smoke and grab it. And then open your hand and see how much is there. Isn't it interesting how often that when you go to grab the smoke, what do you actually do? You push the smoke away. (laughs) You can't grab it. What happens when you try not to grab smoke? What happens when you try to control things in your life? What happens when you try to have everything figured out just right? Does your knowledge make everything go smoothly? What happens when you create these nice, neat little boxes for you and for others to conform to? Does this lead to your relationships being free of unmet expectations? Does everyone meet your expectations when you draw the little boxes? Does it lead your relationships to be free of disappointment? Does it lead your relationships to be free of conflict? Does it lead your relationships to be free of tragedy? Can you control things 
in such a nice, neat, tidy little way that you can avoid these things? The answer is obviously no. It's like trying to grab smoke. We can pour our whole lives into something. Work, relationships, motherhood, fatherhood, athletics, health, church. We can pour the entirety of our lives into something. And at the end of the day, it might succeed, it might not. You might pour yourself into your children and watch them reject you. You might pour yourself into your spouse and watch them reject you. You may pour yourself into your work and be fired for no cause. What happens when we try to control our life? What we realize is that it can't be controlled. How many small businesses that started up last January with excitement and zeal? We've worked hard, we've saved, we've planned, we've put it all together, we've done the research, and everything's in place. How many of them plan for a pandemic? How many of them plan for, now, here's what we're going to do. Now, if the government shuts everything down, then this is what we'll do. How many of those small businesses are not operating today? How much control do we really have or are we really, truly able to exert in this life? How many of you have ever built a sandcastle at the beach. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows no more. Psalm 103. And yet we love to pretend that we do have control. The preacher here, Koheleth, speaks with an un expected voice and unexpected emphases in order to demolish our pretense and our pretending because he knows we need to have this abolished the world is complex god made the world he declared it to be very good but then man sinned and god had to curse and now the world groans as Paul says in Romans 8. And yet the world is not only evil. There is still good in this world. This world is still God's creation. This is a world that God has made still. It is a world in which his goodness can still be tasted of. And not only by believers, by unbelievers. It is a world that even though it has fallen, it still has goodness, truth, and beauty. Now, how do we hold on to both of these things? How do we live in a way that recognizes both of these realities? See, it's not so nice and simple and tidy. It is complex. Everyone is going to experience both goodness and badness in this life but who can control the weather 
Ecclesiastes is a meditation on how life seems to elude our grasp. As one writer has said, its aim is to wound from behind like a punch in the back. It makes painful points we didn't see coming and which leaves us blinking in surprise. And yet it's because we were not seeing otherwise that this has to happen. What will I leave behind that will count as a lasting monument to all of my efforts? What do we gain, the author says, by all of our toil under the sun? What are you going to leave? What are you going to leave behind that's going to count as a lasting monument to your efforts? What does it gain or what do we gain this idea of gain means it conveys the idea of something that's left over something that remains at the end it's in in business this is what we call profit it's what it means to be in the black for those who are uninitiated being in the black is good financially i had to learn that myself you leave only one thing behind Solomon tells us well what's the one thing that you leave behind the earth notice what he says you leave behind the earth that you once lived on it remains right where it was when you arrived only now it is spinning without And this includes if you have children. This includes if you have grandchildren, he says. By the way, one of my favorite things right now, because I'm an extremely boring person, is watching YouTube videos on genealogies. And it is fascinating, one, that someone has done all this work. But you can watch these videos on genealogies that can be about European royalty or British royalty or... Uh, one specific royal person, um, all kinds of stuff. And what is amazing is just how many people make up these genealogies, and guess what? No one remembers them unless you do the work of this genealogy. And guess what? Most people are not boring like me, and they don't want to watch a YouTube video on genealogies. And what's also remarkable is how often when you get into the genealogies, what they'll do, if they're honest, is they'll say, by the way, now at this point, we're kind of guessing because the record isn't clear. And we don't really know. If you're Irish, like me, there is no record. They were destroyed during the Civil Wars, During fires, the records were held in churches, they're gone. There is no historical record. If you're of the northern ten tribes of Israel, gone. There is no record. What will I leave behind that will count as a lasting monument to all my effort? The earth. A generation comes, he says, a generation goes, but the earth remains. 
Life is short, life is elusive, life is repetitive. Everything seems to be coming and going and going round and round and round. He talks about the sun, he talks about the wind, he talks about streams and oceans, and he talks about people. And not only is creation like this, he says, but humanity itself. In verses 5 through 8, there is this really cool threefold pattern that he uses to describe creation and then to describe humanity. And he does it in such a way that the pattern for the world is matched by the same pattern in human experience. The activities of the sun, wind, and water follow the same course as the activities of speaking, seeing, and hearing. The world doesn't seem to go or get anywhere. It just repeats. And this is also the experience of humanity. Just as water pours into the ocean again and again without ever filling it up, so the things of the world pour into human beings via their eyes, their ears, and they go back out through their mouths. And yet... They never reach a point of complete filling or satisfaction. The world does that. You and I do that. The experience of observing constant motion without lasting achievement is what our normal daily experience is. And what does he say about it? It is so wearisome that no amount of speech can even keep track of it. We long to come across something in our lives that will break the constant repetitive cycle. Something to say or see or hear that will be truly new and therefore significant, but there's nothing. The sands of time are sinking, time is rolling along, and it does so regardless of any of our scientific, technological, or any other type of advancement. What technology does is allow us to experience the oldness of the world in new ways, but it doesn't present us anything new. In fact, quite often, if you get on social media, you'll see that technology is doing nothing but facilitating the old ways even better. And so we, we want to acknowledge these things, Solomon tells us, not fight them. The rest of this book, the rest of the sermon, in the rest of the sermon, he will tell us about how he tried to fight this reality and how he couldn't and that even the attempt to fight it is hevel. The attempt of fighting things as they are is chasing after the wind, he will tell us next week. And yet you and I spend so much of our time, treasure, and talent trying to escape the constraints of our created condition. We are finite. We are not God. We are not in control. And we will not live forever. And yet we pretend it. We will approach our work, 
our relationships, motherhood, fatherhood, athletics, health, church, ministry, whatever it is, we can approach those things from the perspective that if I can just get this to happen, then here is how things will be. I can break the monotony of sin in the church. If I just teach the right doctrines and if if I just promote the word of God the right way and if I just put out there how awesome the gospel is and if I put out there because of the gospel, here's how empowered you are to live in obedience and and here's what God says obedience looks like. If, If I just throw that out there enough, I can somehow make it so that sin will not continue to rear its ugly head in the church. If I just do all that, I can make it so that the church no longer manifests sin. And the church will only manifest what is true of it in the heavenly places. And then guess what happens? Sin rears its ugly head in me. So what does that mean for us? It's still here. The point is not to try to rid the church of these things, but to teach us how to deal with them as they occur. And to deal with them not as those with one foot in the world, but deal with them as those who do have one foot in the heavenly places. We want to work to keep the world out of the church. But beloved, the reality is it's always going to be here until Christ returns. And so how do we live wisely in light of that? And it can happen with your approach to your job, your approach to your relationships, your approach to everything. If I can just do these certain things, then here is how I can get heaven on earth. It doesn't work that way, beloved, because life under the sun is a vapor, and it's constantly in motion. We want novelty in a world where we truly come to know that there is nothing new. And yet, as C.S. Lewis has said, the pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than anything else to the law of diminishing returns. We want permanence in a world of change. We want novelty in a world where there is nothing new. We want permanence in a world of change. We want to stop time. We want to turn back time. The relationship starts to get rocky. What do you want to do? Well, let's go back to that time when we were dating and everything was exciting. Things get a little difficult, things get hard. Well, let's, let's remember this time in the past and let's just try to go back there. Let's try to turn back time. Let's try to act as if the things causing the difficulties aren't real and we'll just pretend that we can deal with this by just going backwards in time. We like to play pretend. And the reality is, beloved, not only do we do this, this is what the world does. If you want to understand, not agree with, if you want to understand how we 
have come to live in a world where someone can say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, and the people around that person go, yeah, okay. If you want to understand how we have gotten there, then you have to understand that what people like to do is pretend that the world is not as it is. Last week I mentioned that because of certain influences like, like Nietzsche, that the world, the, the world right now, the secular world, has come to embrace a paradigm of existence that is based on power. But when you take the teachings of Nietzsche and then and you start filtering them uh, through psychology and then you start filtering that through sociology, what you get is a paradigm of power where the individual self has become the ultimate authority in the world to the point that meaning in life comes from establishing the world that you are going to live in. It means this. You can watch Anna Green Gables and you can watch how the philosophy of this is played out in that movie as she comes to the end and what she says as she's standing on the bridge having cited romantic poets throughout those movies. I came to realize it's not what life has for me, it's what I bring to life. And what has come a little over a hundred years later is that philosophy is being played out even at the individual level of someone saying, I am not what my physical body shows. Now, that's an extreme application, but when you and I pretend that the world isn't as it is, when we try to play pretend and, and we try to uh, pursue novelty in a world where there is nothing new and when we try to create permanence in a world that is in change because that's how God has designed it, we are doing the same thing. And so what Koheleth tells us, what the preacher tells us is don't fight this, embrace it. There is a certainty that comes in this life by embracing the shortness, the elusiveness, the repetitiveness, and how it is taking us to our death. Accepting death, he says, is the first step in order to know how to live. There is wisdom that comes from embracing the world as it is, as it is revealing to us that we are finite, that we are not in control, that we cannot alter how things work, and that even trying to do so is chasing after the wind. We can accept the world as it is, and we can accept our existence within it, and we can accept our coming death in a way that helps us not to play pretend with our desires and with our expectations. Beloved, there is no gain in chasing after 
the wind. So don't engage in the chase. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the world is so subtle in the way that it can infect how we understand it, how we understand ourselves, and how we understand you. And so help us to embrace the limitations that exist within this world as it is created by you and as it exists under your curse. But help us to do this, Lord, not to be cynical, not to give up, but to do so to find the wisdom that you have for us in embracing our creatureliness and looking for all that you have promised us as Abraham did, not within this world, but as he looked for that city that was to come that would be built by you. And so, Lord, help us to embrace that we have no lasting city here, that we would not waste our time and our treasures and our talents trying to make this world into something that it cannot be made into. Instead, help us to walk in the wisdom of trusting you and looking for that world that is to come. And to do so, Lord, so that we can reveal to this world this world that has become convinced that this is all there is. And so grab the gusto and, 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 and do what you can with it while you can. And use that as an excuse for power, for hurting people, for war, for rejecting their physical generation. Father, whatever it is. May we model to this world that there is wisdom in embracing what is. And so, Lord, bless us as we trust you in the darkness, the darkness of which you have already freed us from and that we do not have to fear. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.